Hey there, welcome to the Snakebird Podcast. My name's Steve. And I'm Josh. And together we invite you to join us as we explore the mysteries of Scripture, the realm of God, and freedom through Christ. So spread out your wings and slither in place because this is Snakebird. Snakebird. Hey, welcome, Snakebirds, to another episode of the cast. Today we find ourselves in part two of talking about hard or difficult sayings of Jesus, attempting to find out what they mean and how we can apply them to our lives in the context with which he spoke. Yeah. In the last one, I mean, we got into some some squirrely ones, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Cannibalism, like you said. Yeah. Uh, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. We got into... Uh, Family division. Yeah, hating your father and mother. Yeah. And if this is all sounding new to you, go check that episode out. And self-mutilation. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Oh, oh, uh, origin that that fellow. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't even focus on him too much. I know. Yeah, that, that yeah. was that was funny. But yeah, we're gonna be jumping in into the next round here, guys. So you want to start us off, Josh, or you want me to? Because the next one I have is where Jesus commands us to be perfect. I think it would be perfect if you would start us off. You clever devil. I see what you did there. <laughs> so this is found in Matthew 5:48, where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Mm. And uh, I'll, I'll read that again in a minute as we, as we jump into context. But this one is a hard saying of Jesus that I have personally been asked about before. Um, at our local homeless shelter, once I was passing out Bibles and drinks and whatnot, clearly being perfect, and um, <laughs> wow, that's, that's awesome joke. <laughs> and as usual, you know, someone would come up to uh, spark a, a theological debate. And believe it or not, there can actually be some pretty deep thinkers in places like this where you'd never expect them. But in this particular encounter, uh, a gentleman was discussing the passage of John eight eleven, where Jesus had made that famous statement, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And the scene was was the woman who was very promiscuous, and Jesus had forgiven her. And the statement he left her with was, go and sin no more. And this person that I was speaking with said to me, you know, once you've been acquainted with Christ, there is a possible life where you can go and sin no more, Mm -hmm. like ever. You You don't sin again. And he followed up by saying, you know, I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I, I'm doing my best to discover that to, to where I don't ever sin again. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I believe that he was, for the most part, heading in a, in a great direction in his life because um, he was seeking what pleased God. But I really feel like he misunderstood what Jesus was saying in that. Uh, I don't believe the point was to urge people to discover a flawless life because we see in Scripture that that Jesus is the only one who could have ever done that. And Mm -hmm. he he did. He accomplished that. Uh, Not to mention, we we got Scriptures like 1 John uh, 1.8 that tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So Jesus definitely wasn't trying to tell us that we've got to be perfect after an encounter with him. But nevertheless, this statement by Jesus can be it can be considered a hard saying for some. Yeah. So I've got a, a, a pretty specific direction that I'm going to go in with it kind of explaining this. And it's going to be um, kind of springboarding us into a few other hard sayings of Jesus that intertwined into a bird's eye concept, which is really cool because 
when we can pinpoint a concept, we can confirm a lot more than face value verses. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I go there uh, next, Josh. Is there anything you want to add before we jump into that? No, I don't think so, because I, I did look at a couple of these, and I think I'll be able to kind of be the color commentary on a couple of them. Cool, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm interested to hear what you present. Sweet. So let's jump into Matthew five forty six through 48. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I want to dissect not just these verses, but the whole idea of being perfect. Mm -hmm. And from what I can see, Jesus tied this concept up in several different parables. And the ones that I want to connect the dots on are this one we just read, Matthew 5, 48, then 35 verses prior in Matthew 5, 13, and also Matthew 19, 23 with the rich young ruler. So we're kind of getting several hard teachings of Jesus in one here, mm-hmm. because the rich young ruler scripture is another one of those on the list where it's it's a tough pill to swallow if you read it the wrong way. So there's a lot to say in that one. So hopefully as these unfold, we can just kind of talk it out. And that leads right into the camel and the eye of the needle. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a lot of hard sayings in these. So in Matthew chapters five through seven, we see that famous sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. And it, it was a, a massive sermon. Where Ginormous. He, it was. It, he touched on so many different things. And um, in that sermon that he gave, we see a distinction made between the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, He gave so many descriptions of what those who are saved will look like and what those who are not saved will look like. And he tells us that those who are genuinely saved will be a city on a hill, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. In Matthew 5.13, just reading right out of scripture, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And to be honest, for years, this statement that Jesus made bothered me. It It bothered me bad. Because I've been at many points in my life where I considered myself saved, but also recognized that the characteristics of love in my life had faded so severely that some might not even recognize me as a believer. Mm. And I know that sounds harsh, but I'm being honest with you here. I mean, there's been times in my life where I was grieving the Spirit. I was not following God the way that I should have been. I was not staying connected. And if you've ever been at this point of recognition, then you know the agonizing levels it can digress to. Was I ever really saved? Was I once saved, but now I've lost it. Satan loves these ruts that we get hung up in because, um, you know, it's caused from a neglect on our part of spiritual things in our life. So this, this what happens is a loss of saltiness. This is a regression into what we look like naturally instead of what the new creation looks like. And here, Jesus says that when we lose our saltiness, we are good for nothing at that point. And it wasn't until many years later that God revealed to me something um, in his word that I'm never going to forget. And it's found in Matthew 19, 23, which says, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. 
And Josh, I know that you you have some stuff to say on that, but are you cool if I keep going with yes. this thought? Because the thought, it intertwines. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, the context here, the word rich is representing the rich young ruler, but this wasn't about money. It was about the condition of the heart. Um, it was about a person who had just realized that salvation comes through Jesus, who would recreate them into a city on a hill, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. In the Old Testament, it spoke of this loss of saltiness in scriptures like Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is but rules taught by men. Mm. And this rich young ruler thought that all that time he was the salt of the earth through the keeping of the commandments. But here, face to face with Jesus, he realized that he had lost his saltiness. His saltiness was not salty at all. And Jesus says of this condition, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the truth of that statement made Jesus' disciples nauseous to the the point of asking, well, what on earth can we do to be saved then? Mm-hmm. And his response was, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And it was at this point, listener, that I realized the correlation back to Matthew chapter 5. And that is, even when we have lost our saltiness, and even though Jesus said that we at that point are good for nothing, with God, it is possible to be made right through surrendering back to Him our lives. We can be made salty again, even though it says, how can you be made salty? There's a way with God. Wow. With God, there is a way. Yeah. So that that was just that was one of those moments where God just revealed that to me, and it and it cleared up so many questions I had in my own mind because I I have struggled with questions like that. I don't look salty anymore. What's mm-hmm. wrong? Have I lost my salvation? And and I just really I thought that was a really good kind of three in one idea that Jesus has this concept of. He's the way, yeah. and if you surrender to Him, it doesn't matter how unsalty that you allowed yourself to get. Yes. Um, so yeah, it, it, there's a lot there, but Josh, mm-hmm. I know there's a lot more to unpack in, in a lot of that, so I'm going to hand it back over to you. Yeah, well, I mean, coming from a guy who is a rich young ruler who seems like he's very well uh, versed in the faith, <laughs> you know, yeah. he's quoting scripture at Jesus, he's representing himself well up until that point where Jesus says, there is one thing you haven't done and you can do it now. Sell your property, give the poor the money you get for it and come and join my disciples. Sell all your possessions. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a whole nother hard (laughs) saying right there. Yes. Yeah. Because there are those I think that could even take that one little instruction from Jesus and start to apply it to every single person, thinking that that is um, a principle, a kingdom mm-hmm. principle. Yeah. And I, I could also see some detractors from the faith going, well, you're not doing that, so clearly you are not listening to the words of Jesus. Right. And this is where, um, in episode one, we talked about how some of the things that he said are not just a carte blanche, take, you know, um, instruction or band-aid for every single person to take but it's more speaking to the heart yes because this is one of those instances where we find that this was an issue of idolatry Mm -hmm. and this young man he was all about his possessions and 
um, I've said it so many times because it sounds like a cliche. Instead of him having his possessions, his possessions had him. And that's the choice he made. Yeah, and that's right. He uh, he found this counsel too hard to accept. And um, I found it interesting that, like you said, it's sometimes called the counsel of perfection, which is another way that uh, Matthew nineteen twenty one phrases it. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And, and again, this isn't something that was the duty of all. There's several instances in scripture that show that this is not the case. Um, there were several people that were actually supplying the disciples with um, resources on their way and yeah. giving them places to stay and making sure they were provided with food. They had to get that somewhere. Yes. And if they had <laughs> sold all of their possessions, yeah. then they wouldn't have that ability. Yeah. And even you look at Zacchaeus, who said, I have... Um, given up to half my wealth to restore fourfold all that I have taken. Another instance of him not, you know, selling all that he had. And so clearly the indication for this young man was that this was something where Jesus said, you know, your treasure's in heaven, and yet it looks like you're more connected to your worldly possessions. Yeah. It was it was a very harsh sounding thing to that young yes. ruler. Your treasure should be in heaven. So, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And um, so I continued it on, and in anticipation of talking a little bit about the camel through the eye of a needle, again, just wanting to talk only about hard sayings that deal with animals. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting that uh, just to, some of the things that I've heard about it. Um, one of the theories is that there was an, a gate called the Needle Gate. Yeah, <laughs> you've heard that, yeah, right? I've heard this. And um, so the the thought is that there was a gate that was a little bit lower than some of the other gates. And the only way to get your camel through, uh, even though it was a very difficult process, the only way to get them through was to unburden them of everything that they had and get them down on their their knobbly knees and start pushing them through. Yeah. And uh, I like that a lot of the commentators that I found were like, well, first and foremost, historically, they can't find a needle gate. And second, it would be dumb for any camel driver to take the time to do that versus just going and finding a gate that their camel would actually fit through with their burdens and their packs and all that. Right. But it preaches well. Yes, it does. It does because it's like, you got to lay aside everything and you got to get down on your yeah. knees. Yeah. Well, you know, that's very works-based, isn't it? It is. Which I'm not saying works don't mean anything, but that that is a very works-based way of looking at that, mm-hmm. at that scripture. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think there is also the the debate on the words yeah. of camel versus cable. Yeah, I've seen that. There is the Greek word there, and I don't have it in front of me, but I've I've studied this in the past. There is there is a a common word used for camel, and it's like a rope or a cord, mm-hmm. a big cord. Yes, a thick. Yeah, and they they say usually the context of what's being talked about determines what which word it is, if mm-hmm. it's camel or the so. I, I did hear at one point that it would be a massive, like a rope, like a ship rope, you know, mm-hmm. a big cord. It would make more sense since he mentioned the word needle because needles are threaded. Yeah. That it would be not a camel, but a, a rope. Yeah. And he's talking about it. But honestly, if you look at it either way, whether it's a camel or a big ship rope, mm-hmm. it's impossible to get either one of those through a needle. Yes. 
it, it's impossible either way. And yeah. Jesus, I think, main point in that was not that you have to go through the works-based notion of stripping your camel down and forcing <laughs> him through the door. Yeah, it's actually a point of this is impossible. Yes, it, it, not not the money thing, but the heart thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it re- it's reminiscent of that verse that Jesus said where. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of a scribe or a Pharisee, it's impossible to go to heaven. And the requirement is perfection. Yeah. That's the only way to get to heaven. Yeah. And that's what he's trying to emphasize is he's like, you can get to heaven if you're perfect. That's a good point. That is a great correlation because that's the same thing. Both works-based type of deal. Yeah. And... The only way that we can achieve perfection is by receiving Jesus's as our own. Yeah. And, and what know. I meant by works base is that's not what Jesus was saying. He no. was saying that it's impossible. Yes. And, you know, that's that's the preaching is if you ever wanted to get to heaven on your own, just you can be perfect. Yeah. Which is impossible. I mean, yeah. we, we had that episode just a few weeks ago about the sin nature. Yes. We're, we're already, yeah. uh, you know... We're we're born in a deficit already. We're yeah yeah we're hosed, and, and in both you know those situations, it, it spurred the question: How can we be saved? Yes. Which is exactly the question Jesus wanted them to ask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That that was where he was trying to lead them to. Since you asked, yeah. it's me. And so, I mean, just for our hearts and for application from that, it's like. Where do we stand with our possessions? Is there anything in our lives that we couldn't lose that would keep us from um, embracing everything that God has for us? Yeah. Because if it's like, well, I want Jesus, but I also want my Beamer, you know, Uh, then there's a heart thing there. And and I I say that in a tongue-in-cheek manner, like joking, but maybe it is a relationship. Maybe it is a possession. Maybe it is um, an ideal. Maybe it is a bank account. Whatever it might be, if it's going to stand in the way of Jesus, just like when we talked about uh, hate your mother and your father, if it's going to take that that place of precedence of what is most important, then you need to have an inward look and a real conversation with yourself because those are the things that can separate us from the kingdom. And I think we can look back through all of the topics so far and just say, you know, that's the common denominator. It's Mm -hmm. a heart thing. Yeah. It's with the hate father and mother. It was like you said, it was relationship based. Mm Mm-hmm. And with the rich young ruler, it was possessions based. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things, Jesus is saying, I I take the throne in your life. Yes. Nothing else. Not possessions, yeah. not relationships. And all a lot of these hard sayings can be summed up when you understand that. Yeah. And that was the goal of everything that he said was for people to look inward and go, yeah. where am I at? Yeah. And and it's at every point I think and I'm sure there's cases where this isn't exactly the case, but in every point of these topics, I think that the reason people try to take it literal, like the eating of the flesh, the the relationships, all of this stuff, is because they find it hard to confront their own heart. Mm, yeah. In every one of these, the reason it's a hard saying is because of the self-confrontation. Mm-hmm. And without that, without repentance, without the the belief and faith as Jesus is everything, yeah, these are hard sayings. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Man, I really appreciate the way that you presented that. 
Oh, I, it wasn't in my notes. I just <laughs> you spurred my thoughts. Yeah. Well, I mean, all of it. I, I just yeah. I think all of those tied together. And you know, to go back to like FF Bruce, which man, what a cool first. You know, like, right? Who, Very masculine. Yeah. Yeah. Is it fast forward Bruce? I, I don't know. It's probably, fast and furious Bruce. It's probably like Francis Frankenstein Bruce or something. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Anyway, um, to go back to his seventy hard sayings. I mean to even wrap three of those together and kind of like figure out, you know, the underlying nature of them. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. For, and I, I've got to get that book. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah I can't I'm wait. curious um, on the other ones. Cause I felt like we, when I was doing my notes, I was like, Oh, we got a lot of these. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have 70. <laughs> I'm coming into some birthday money. So <laughs> Amazon might be getting some business. I don't that's know. <laughs> so, um, I guess I'll roll on with yeah. another hard saying, so this one, um, I, I'm like, did I choose funny ones? Because <laughs> uh, this one might strike you as interesting because a lot of people use this for uh, a basis to to quote the Constitution, Amendment Number Two. The, oh yeah, right to I bear know where arms. You're going with yeah. This. Okay. Yes. So I I found this fascinating because the more I researched, the more I found like very very opinionated websites quoting this verse as a reason to own firearms. Okay. And so uh, if you know what I'm talking about, then you're like, oh, you're shaking your head. But if you don't, let's get into it. Uh, One of the hard sayings that I found is that Jesus said, sell your garment and buy a sword. And so I'm going to read this. It comes from Luke chapter 22. Uh, It's right as um, Jesus is about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples are kind of freaking out because he is saying, hey, all of this is coming down. Judas has already left their group and they they thought he's going out to buy them something. They don't realize what's all going to happen. And they're heading again to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's about to be betrayed. So Jesus says to them in verse 35 of Luke 22, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And I don't know how many times I've read this passage, but it's always perplexed me. Yeah, it has me too. Yeah. And I remember someone even telling me at one point, this is the first concealed carry, blah, 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 <laughs> and all this. And I, I just went with it because I'm, I'm personally a supporter of the Second Amendment. Yes, but, of course. Um, it, there's clearly something going on here more than just that. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those that's hard to kind of understand because you're like, is he promoting violence? Because in all of his teachings, Jesus never promoted violence. It's, yeah. it's never a course that he would... Uh, that he would steer us toward. And so... Less is flipping tables. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, calling out the money changers. But it's like, is this to be taken literally? Mm-hmm. And why swords? Like, why protection? And then um, 
how would two swords be enough when he said it's enough? Yeah. And, and so I found some interesting things and, um, I'm going to kind of present to you some schools of thought if that's okay. Oh yeah. I so, can't wait. uh, first and foremost, some say that Jesus is actually dealing in sarcasm here. Okay. And, um, so some, some are saying that when he's talking about this, he's like, yeah, you're going to be hated. So you need swords. And <laughs> I'm, I kind of like that. Jesus. Yeah, I, I do too. I'm not so sure I'm on the, I'm on this side of the school, but okay. I, I think it's interesting that he's like, they already hate me. And so they're going to hate you and they're going to consider you to be just as bad as the bandits who would rob you. And this is where that protection theory comes in. John MacArthur, our favorite <laughs> MacArthur out there, said this, When Christ sent them out before, he had sovereignly arranged for their needs to be met. Henceforth, they were to use normal means to provide for their own support and protection. The money bag, knapsack, and sword were figurative expressions for such means, the sword being emblematic of protection, not aggression. But they mistakenly took his words literally. And I want to say this, Galileans normally wore swords. Jesus did not. But when we talk about swords, we're not talking about like, give me a sword. <laughs> these <laughs> these swords were short dagger-like instruments, more like knives than, than actual swords. There was nothing unusual about the carrying of such a weapon in that culture. They had many practical uses beside violence against other people. It's kind of like a lot of... Men in West Texas carry pocket knives. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I carry a pocket knife. Yeah. So, Well, it was a tool, it sounds like. They could obviously use it for stuff like that. But obviously with, with people that could harm them, it was also for defense. Yes. Yeah. And when it shows that the disciples, uh, this is the other school of thought where he's like, you need swords. It's like they took him literally because they revealed that they had already anticipated his advice and they were like, we have two swords. You know, yeah. it shows how far they were from resembling a band of zealous insurgents uh, because, of course, they would have been far from adequately equipped. And um, the way that Jesus concluded this conversation didn't mean that the two swords that they had would be enough, but that, again, it was ludicrously insufficient against the band that would come to arrest them, armed with swords and clubs. And, and so a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians actually translate this verse as, instead of, like, it is enough, to enough of this. Stop talking about swords. You're not even getting it. <laughs> so I really appreciated that view viewpoint on this. Yeah. No, that spurs a couple thoughts from me. Um, in this situation, it almost seems like it it, it has to be literal or not, mm -hmm. because um, he lays out that you, you remember when I sent you without a bag? Well, now you're going to need a bag. Mm -hmm. It's a, that, that seems pretty literal with a money bag. And then so with a sword, it, it seemed like it would be a literal thing. But what it made me think of was when Jesus first pulled them and called them and said, hey, follow me, and they dropped everything they're doing, and they followed him. He, at that point, started teaching them everything reversed from what they knew. They didn't have to work anymore. Before that, they were having to provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. But he was like, you don't need a job right now, not yes. for this moment. Yeah. 
And so he pulled them from things that were usually the norm. Mm -hmm. And it's like in this moment, he's saying, listen, I'm fixing to go away and things are going to become more normal like they used to be. I am your sufficiency now. Yes. But But you you carried a sword for all these different reasons. You're going to carry one again. I sent you out with a money bag or without a money bag previously. Those were all trial runs as I was teaching you, but things are about to go back to normal. See, that's a great way to say it. And that's kind of what it made me think of there. But But I also also totally see the sarcasm at the end because they're like yeah i get it i get it so should we get two swords Mm -hmm. it's like no yeah stop yeah (laughs) he's like yeah totally get two swords well and then (laughs) later on when uh peter uh right you know decides to use his sword on the servant of the high priest you know he of course he went after the most manly man (laughs) i wonder how quickly peter went and got a sword after this or if he already had it i don't know i think he had one of the two swords okay i think he was like i'm gonna i'm gonna have this right here for safety. like get a sword and peter like yeah instantly lifts it up i got, I got it right here yeah right here. <laughs> because later on when peter cuts off the dude's ear yeah. jesus is like peter you idiot don't you know that yeah. he who lives by the sword will die by the sword and yes and he's like put that thing away well, <laughs> you're gonna yeah. hurt somebody uh, kind of a balance between the two schools of thought it sounds like yes yeah so and again in terms of um the Second Amendment, I, I appreciate that one person said this. This text has nothing to say directly on the question of whether armed resistance to injustice and evil is ever justifiable. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like, did some of them have protection to show to a bandit, hey, I take my protection of myself seriously? You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I You know... That, that's a sticky one, because I, I think that if you were to take it too far one way, you have the Crusades. Mm-hmm. And if you have, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they use the sword. That's an extreme. That's, yeah. and, but if you also, if you say that, I mean, should a Christian literally think that freedom is that important? I, I don't know if I would go fully against that either. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because there's a, there's a level of, of stopping evil people mm-hmm. is showing love to people who would be harmed by that. Yeah. So I, but in this case, I do not think that it's, it's saying anything about take up arms to spread no. the gospel or take up arms because that's what Christians do. No. I think there's definitely a case by case type of thing. And there's the turn the other cheek and, but yeah, also yeah. protecting your family and protecting someone from evil. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's plenty of other scriptures that actually speaks better in that circumstance. I will say I think it's very foolish for anybody that's pro second amendment to use that as a proof text. Mm-hmm. For, I do. Yeah, so I agree. I agree yeah. with that, but yeah. to, to jump on a, on that is a whole other topic too. Coming across those websites, I was like this feels a little yep. like uh, Red Bullish, <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> yep. Come on, <laughs> read your Bible, man. We all gotta have guns. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Then don't use this as your proof text, like you said. Yeah. No, I agree. So, if it's all right, I have one more. Yeah. And uh, I didn't even expect to really pull this one out. But as I was closing up my notes today, I was like, oh, we can't leave this one off because, again, there could be as many as seventy sayings. Yeah. But we're we're only scratching the surface here. And one of them is, uh, let the dead bury the dead. Oh, yeah. And that feels, especially from Jesus, pretty harsh. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And it comes from uh, Luke chapter 9. A lot of these come from Luke. I feel like as Dr. Luke was chronicling all these things, he was like, oh, that's a good story. I need to tell that one. He was a man of details. Yes, he was. And 
You know, this is a passage again, I always say this, but I've read this plenty of times, but there's some things about it, some subtleties that I missed because there are actually three instances of someone wanting to be a follower of Jesus where um, it doesn't really say if they've actually followed him. And I'm going to read it if it's all right. It's Luke chapter nine, and I'm going to start in verse 57, and then we'll come back to let the dead bury the dead and kind of talk about why that is potentially a hard saying to understand. So 57 says, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then... That's the last time it refers to that person. (laughs) Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, and of course, we don't know what that person did. Yeah. But another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. So three instances where people are saying, hey, I think I want to be a disciple. And three places where Jesus said pretty direct things to them that possibly discouraged them from following him. Yeah. You know, I... I didn't realize that those were three different instances. I always, I, I really did yeah. think it was just kind of one guy. This, yeah, I, I didn't either, you know. And um, so, just looking at those uh, instances, I kind of lump these in as the "I'll follow you if," you know, because yeah. it's it's like that. I'll follow you, but, <laughs> and those words have served as a text for a lot of powerful sermons. But Jesus is trying to emphasize what it means to be a disciple. And in all of these circumstances, he's like, listen, y'all are focused on family and comfort. And you're focused on what's behind you versus what's ahead. Because the guy who says, let me first go and bury my father. He wasn't asking for permission to dig a grave for his deceased father. Yeah. What he wanted was to remain in his father's house and care for him until his father died. And he didn't have a time frame on when his dad was going to pass. He was just like, oh, wow. I'm not prepared. I didn't realize that. Okay. I I always read that as he was on his deathbed. No. So, wow. So that, that makes it a lot less harsh in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's why this is, I mean, hard saying at first, maybe not as difficult. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because it's one of those, um, this man wanted to follow Jesus, but just not yet. Yeah. And wow, I've met some of those people and they scare the crud out of me. Yeah, that's true because um, we've talked about it before. You're judged based on the knowledge you know. Mm-hmm. And if you know Jesus is the way, but you got some other stuff that's a little more important. Yes. Yeah. And it, it falls back to what the emphasis has been for these last two episodes is that Jesus has to come first. Yeah you know, above your family obligations, above any other obligation, if you put that ahead of following Jesus, whether it's your possessions or it's your family or anything else, then you're you're not in alignment. You're not um, having your priorities right. Yeah. 
And that that really is, isn't it? It's the common denominator in every single one of these hard sayings. Mm-hmm. It's it's a focus on who is Jesus in your life. Yes. And how important is he? Yeah. And going back even to last episode, your quote of Francis Chan, I found this. Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples. Unlike many modern preachers, he was more interested in quality than in quantity. In addition, Jesus was merely being honest. This is what it meant to follow him. And he wanted people to know it right from the beginning. Yeah. And so uh, I just, it's, it's one of those stories where you would think, man, God, have some compassion, yeah. <laughs> you know, let the dead bury the dead, you know, and yeah. you're just like, oh my gosh. But when you realize that he wasn't really ready to count the cost and follow Jesus, dropping everything, then he really hadn't been worthy of being a disciple. Yeah, and I think you said it there too. He wanted people to know it from the beginning. That's what the whole parable about the person who was going to build a tower. Mm-hmm. He's like, who takes this on without yes. first calculating the yeah. cost? Yeah, And the same thing with a, a lot of these others. Yes, yeah, and to the last guy, the one who was like, "But there's people at my house. Let me just go say goodbye." Yeah, I found this. I love. I love these Spurgeon quotes. He says, Oh, young man, when you are thinking of leaving the world, be afraid of these farewells. They have been the ruins of hundreds of hopeful people. They have been almost persuaded, but then they have gone to their old companions just to give them the last kiss, the last shake of the hand, and we have not seen anything more of them. Wow. And I feel like, you know, that's what sometimes people do. They they say, I just want to have that one last um, pursuit of a worldly passion, or I just want to go say goodbye to my friends. Yeah. And what happens is that they fall among thorns mm-hmm. and you never see them again. They think it's going to be a quick rendezvous, mm-hmm. but um, forget the grips of sin. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, I think for the application of that, it's like whatever would keep you from following Jesus wholeheartedly, Yeah, let those things go. And that's been kind of the crux of the whole uh, last two episodes. Yeah. Well, you know, I have a, a specific takeaway kind of in relation to all that we're talking about right yeah. here. I didn't cut you off, did I? No, not okay. at all. Okay. So, and, and I, as I was thinking about the all of these topics and, and what the common denominator was and everything, I was thinking of... Um, The fact that we, it's okay to have things, to enjoy things in this world as we're living in it. But this whole idea of Jesus being our number one, and it reminded me like exactly of this scene in this movie that I used to love. It was a movie that I liked a lot. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I don't feel comfortable recommending it. <laughs> okay. But I, it was a good movie in my uh, old uh, reservoir of movies, if that's even a phrase. <laughs> it, I'm stuttering because I don't want to mention the movie. But I will say this. The, the characters, it's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And De Niro, the whole movie, is a crook. Okay. And Pacino, the whole movie, he's a cop pursuing De Niro. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, as the movie unfolds, uh, Robert De Niro, the crook, he he meets this girl. He starts to fall in love with her, and then she slowly starts to figure out there's something up with this guy. He's making his money bad. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of the movie, they finally sit down at the bar, and they're they're talking. And they, it, you have this whole sense of there's a showdown that's fixing to happen. Mm-hmm. But they're talking, and Al Pacino, the cop, he asks him, he says... 
you know, how have you lived so long in this life with this this um, this this life you live, you, this this criminal activity, and now you got this girl? What are you gonna do? And he says, you got a choice to make right here, and I'm mm-hmm. here. We're face to face. You know this is about to go down. Yeah. And De Niro, he looks at him, and I, I'm paraphrasing some of this, but he says, you know, I made this decision a long time ago, and whatever happens in my life, whatever I allow in my life, I have to be ready in 10 seconds flat to leave it all behind mm-hmm. and to walk. Mm-hmm. And that's what I have to be willing to do to make sure that I've lasted this long. That's yeah. how I've lasted this long. You have mm-hmm. to be ready in 10 seconds flat to drop it and walk. Yeah. And he does at the end of the movie, he ends up dropping this girl that he loves in 10 seconds flat to go and he, and he walks away from her to, to escape so that he can be this criminal and escape it all. And it doesn't end well for him. But I thought to myself, man, isn't that the Christian life though? Mm-hmm. We have the stuff that we can enjoy. We have some stuff in this life that's okay to have. But we have to be ready in 10 seconds flat to walk away from everything to follow Jesus. And I know that that's not necessarily the best comparison to compare <laughs> to, a, you know, a criminal to the Christian yeah, life. Yeah. But but that scene does stick out in my mind as, as kind of a Christian mentality of following Jesus. I mean, we have, we have our life here, but our real life's in heaven. Yeah. What's the expression? Plan like Jesus is coming in the next five minutes, but live like Jesus is coming in the next hundred years. Is that it? It's something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to recall the old the old saying, but yeah, no, yeah, it's the same concept. I yeah, think. like make long term plans, but also live like he could be. Yeah. you know, like like this life could end at any minute because yeah. it can. Not the secular version of hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Yeah. It's, it's the Christian version where. Yeah. Our hope is an assurance. Yes. So, yeah. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. I just, I had to kind of bring that one because it, it's one that's always stuck in my mind. Oh, I like it. Well, that is Hard Sayings of Jesus, number one, part two. <laughs> so I don't know if uh, if this is going to resonate with anyone and if they want to hear more, because like we said in the past and in doing the research, we found out that there are several that people feel uh, qualify as hard sayings. And so I would definitely be interested in revisiting this if it is something that strikes a chord with people. No doubt. Yeah, there's so many more that uh, I mean, there's that 70 in the book you brought mm-hmm. and all that. So if, if y'all have some more that y'all want to reach out to us with, just let us know. And we would love to revisit this again. But these are the ones that stuck out on our heart as we kind of thought over some of the hard sayings that, that we've heard. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, uh, there's also hard sayings of the Bible mm-hmm. and hard sayings of Paul, which yeah. I'm like, oh, well, now I'm completely interested in at least knowing what they are and knowing the, the context surrounding them. Yeah, for sure. So uh, if this has resonated with you and you would like to let us know, one of the ways that you can do that is communicating with us uh, by connecting with us on Facebook or through Facebook Messenger. Or you can also send us an email at connect at beasnakebird.com. That would be awesome to hear from you uh, saying, hey, maybe can you guys speak into this heart saying? Yeah, for sure. And whatever podcast uh, platform you're listening on, if you wouldn't mind giving us a good rating and review, it helps push the cast out there. I know we say that, but it, it really does. And it's all about reaching those ears. So Yes. Yeah. The more people that we can reach... Um, the more that we're making an impact of being snake birds. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right, snakebirds, always remember whatever you do, wherever you go, no matter what life throws at you, there's never been a better time to listen to hard sayings of Jesus and get the understanding of what he's actually saying and be a snakebird. Snake